Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, Mark 8. So last week we said uh, lowest low, highest high for Jesus outside of Easter weekend. So prior to his death and resurrection, this in Mark, this is the halfway point of Mark, and it's the lowest low and the highest high. We said, you know, the, the point of Mark is for us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and to follow him. And so for the first eight chapters, Jesus reveals himself, but it's in an indirect and subtle way. And then at the beginning of chapter eight, he has this run in with the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, and they say, we need you to prove it. We want a sign from heaven to show that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm not doing it. And he turns around and walks away. That's a really low point because those are the guys who should get it. They're the educated ones. They're the, again, they're the religious elite. They, they, should, they should be able to figure out this is the Messiah. And they, they can't. They ask, they demand. They don't ask. They demand proof. And Jesus says no. And then he's with his disciples and he says to them, hey, y'all need to watch out because you could fall into the same trap as them. So we have the educated ones, the expected ones, they miss Jesus. And then we have these ones who close to him in, in relationship. And he says, y'all can miss me too. The same thing that happened to them, that can happen to y'all. And they don't get it. Again, it's, it's the lowest point in Mark outside of Good Friday. Those who we think should know better, and either by relationship or by education and experience, none of them are understanding who Jesus is. And then there's this high point. But it's preceded by this weird miracle where there's a guy who's blind. And then remember we said Jesus spits on his, is gross. He spits on his eyes and, and, he, and he touches him and he says, you know, be, be healed or, or whatever he says. And the guy can open his eyes. He can see, but only partially. Never happens anywhere else in the Gospels that when Jesus prays for somebody, they're not instantaneously and completely healed. The guy says, I can see people. They look like trees. And Jesus prays for him again, and then he can see completely. And we said, that, that really happened. And it wasn't because Jesus didn't eat his Wheaties that morning. It wasn't because this guy's condition was very difficult. It was a parable for us. We're all on this continuum from being blind to being able to see completely, and none of us can see completely. None of us see clearly or perfectly. Many of us are like that guy after the first, the first touch. We can see Jesus, but not it's, he's still a little fuzzy. We're still, we're, we're missing a few of the details. We're, we're probably trying to make him a bit more like us than we are trying to be like him. And that's just, that's part of being a person, part of being human. We're not going to see him clearly till we die or he comes back. But that was an encouragement to us to, to keep pressing in, to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus is revealed so clearly to ask the Holy Spirit. It's part of his job. Guide me into the truth of who Jesus is. And so we're going to recover some of that same ground today and then um, kind of poke our toe in something new. So starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after that, after three days, rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So this is actually a high point because the disciples get it. They see you're the Messiah. They, they call it right. That's who Jesus actually is. There's all this stuff kind of floating around. Uh, maybe he's John the Baptist. He gotten his, John the Baptist had gotten his head cut off by Herod. And some people thought, well, maybe John has come back to life. Maybe he's Elijah. If you remember from the Old Testament, Elijah didn't die. He just was taken straight up to heaven. So there was this idea that at the end, God would send Elijah back. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, listen, God's going to send you somebody else like me, a prophet like me. You need to listen to him. And so maybe Jesus is one of those guys. That's some of the stuff floating around in the air. And that's who some people think Jesus is. But Peter says, no, remember, he's speaking for the 12. It's just him personally. He says, you're the Messiah. That's who you are. We just sang that song, you're worthy of your name. That's a weird phrase. What does it mean to be worthy of your name? The name Jesus means God saves. That's what we just sang. You're worthy of that name that God saves because of what you've done. And they're, they're getting it. Yes, you're the Messiah. That means anointed one. You're this one who God has sent to deliver us. The Jews are under Roman oppression. They want to be free. And, and Peter and the 12 say, you're the guy. You're the one that God's going to to do that with it. And again, it's, it's a highlight. People are starting to understand. But then Jesus says, and here's the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. And he starts talking about suffering and being rejected and dying. He does mention being raised to life. They don't hear that at all. Like it, and you can tell that because on Easter, like they don't get it on Easter weekend. They're, they're nowhere to be found. So that doesn't compute. It's very difficult for us to recognize how disorienting Jesus' words would have been to the 12. That it, there's, there's no, at this point, there's no expectation that the Messiah would suffer. His job was to deliver the Israelites. That was his purpose. God was going to send somebody to set them free, to deliver them, to rescue them. There's no room for suffering and dying in the equation. Now, for us, the first thing we learn about Jesus is that he died on the cross. It's a symbol of our religion, the cross. And so for us, like, we can't conceive of Jesus who doesn't die. They can't see, conceive of a Messiah who would. That it does, again, in their understanding, there's not just one template of who the Messiah would be, but there, there is a common thread, and it's, he's, gonna, he's a winner, He's a winner. He's going to be set apart, chosen, picked, selected by God for this job. You're going to set us free. Some combination of Moses, spiritual leader, and David, warrior and king, kind of all smashed up into one. That's who we're looking for. Now, if that's your job is to lead your people to victory, and then you start talking about suffering and dying, they don't match. It doesn't, it doesn't line up. Again, for us... It's cliche that Jesus suffers. For them, a suffering Messiah is an oxymoron. It doesn't compute at all. It's like an accountant who says, yeah, I'm an accountant, but I don't do numbers. I'm a surgeon, but I, I don't operate. Like, you can't be a Messiah if you don't win. That, that's the job. You can be a teacher. You can be a healer. Maybe you can be a miracle worker, but you can't be a Messiah. The whole job is to win. It's to deliver us. And in their mind, that meant you're going to pick up a sword and you're going to defeat these armies and we're gonna, our kingdom is going to go from being down here to being up here. 
That's what's going to happen. They, again, for us, cliche for them, we can't get our mind around how disorienting it was, what he's talking about. And that's why Peter rebukes him. At this, there, there's, no one, there's no sense that the Messiah is God, just a really, really important and special and empowered man. So Peter is going to Jesus and saying, you're missing it. You, you don't understand. A rebuke is a really strong warning. It's not when someone proofreads your paper and underlines the misspellings and says, hey, you forgot a period or a comma here. That's not it. That's correcting and it's good. A rebuke is when you take your friend and you say, hey, listen to me. You're flirting with her. That's not your wife and it's not okay. You better stop. You're breaking the spirit of your marriage vows. And if you don't stop, you're going to shipwreck your life. That's a rebuke. It hurts. It's kind of like a scolding. Very strong. And that's what Peter's saying to Jesus. What he's saying is like, you're missing it. You're the Messiah. Your, your job is to win, not to suffer and die. And then Jesus turns the tables on Peter and he rebukes him back and says, get behind me, Satan. Why? That's strong because he said, what Jesus is saying is the son of man, that's his way of referring to himself. He must suffer, must. It's a defined necessity. This is not kind of incidental suffering or why do bad things happen to good people? This is God's plan and purpose. The Messiah has to suffer. He must. And you, Peter, are trying to pull me off of that road. This road that the Father has me on, you're trying to get me onto another one. That is satanic. Peter doesn't think that. He thinks he's helping. But again, it's, Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I've got to suffer and I've got to die. You got in mind human concerns and not the concerns of God. It's gonna, it, they don't get it. And we wouldn't either if we were them. They don't get it now. They don't get it next week. They don't get it next month. They don't get it till after Jesus dies. It, again, it's, it's such a revolutionary concept to them. Cliche for us. Completely out of the blue for them. And then Jesus goes on and says, and here's what this means for you and for us. Then he called the crowd. So he was just talking to the 12 disciples. Now he calls everybody else. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, must dis deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So now Jesus says, So that's the kind of Messiah I am. I'm the kind who's going to suffer and the kind who's going to die. And here's what it means for y'all. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, my apprentice, you're going to learn from me, you want to live life the way I do, here's what it means for you. It means you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. Those things go together. And it means you've got to follow me. Now, one of the principles of understanding the Bible, you ask three questions. What does it say? So it says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What does it mean? That's super important. What would Jesus' original audience, what would they have heard? And then what does it mean to me? A lot of times we go, what does it say and what does it mean to me? And we skip that middle step and it messes us up. We draw all kinds of wrong conclusions. So what this original crowd, Mark's congregation, remember we said this was written to 
uh, a congregation in Rome in the early 60s, Nero's the emperor, things are starting to heat up for Christians. He's honestly crazy and he begins to persecute Christians in the not too distant future after they read this letter from or this gospel from Mark. What are those guys hearing? What they're hearing, it's, it's what you saw. It's a literal call to die. And the, straightforward. What Jesus is saying is you got to be willing to die. Deny yourself and take up your cross. The cross is, it's the instrument of capital punishment. If the Romans sentence you to death, there's a, there's a vertical pole that says stuck in the ground. And what they give you is the horizontal piece. And they say, you got to carry it to that crucifixion site. It's what happened to Jesus. And then they lay you down when you get there and they attach your arms to the pole either, or to, the, to that cross beam, either with nails or with ropes. They hoist you up onto the vertical pole and they kill you. That's the, there's no other way of understanding take up your cross. Take up your electric chair. That's what he's saying. You've got to be willing to die. Deny yourself. That word deny is much stronger. It, it actually means disown. It's used with, of the way Peter treats Jesus on the last night of Jesus' life. For three different times when he's asked, do you know him? And Peter says, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know. What are you talking about? No, I don't know him. He's disowning Jesus. I don't have any relationship with God. I don't have a clue who he is. It's, this is more than saying I'm not going to have chocolate during Lent. That's one, like, per, that's great. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says deny yourself. He's talking about a radical disowning of our right to call the shots in our own life. When he says take up your cross, that's not dealing with a minor irritation or even a major burden. It's a call to die. We, it's hard for us to hear that because of where we live. That's what the crowd would have heard. No question. You're asking me to die. That's what Mark's congregation would have heard. No question. You're asking me to die. And to follow him down this road of suffering and death. Who, who's in? It's tough. That's tough. And then Jesus says, I, I get it, not the greatest offer in the world. Here, here's some reasons why. And he builds some things out. These, these four reasons, all of them, they're, they're interrelated. And it's easiest to understand them in a context of persecution and potential martyrdom, which is not where we live. It's why this pass. it's one of the reasons this passage is so difficult for us. It's... It, Jesus is speaking to a context that's so far removed from Marietta in 2022. You've heard of the persecuted church or the suffering church. 360 million Christians right now live in places where there's open hostility towards them because of their relationship with Jesus. That information on the screen is all from Open Doors. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an organization that works for the persecuted church. You can look them up, opendoorsusa.org. 360 million they identify the 50 worst countries to live in if you're a Christian. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Turkey. There's a whole list of them. Places where it's difficult for Christians to live. And you can see the stats here. Like that's reality for people. Almost 6,000 people were martyred last year. Killed just because they were Christians. 5,000 churches and, church and Christian buildings were bulldozed. 6,000 people or whatever it said. 5,000 people who were imprisoned and it's a difficult spot for a lot. It's just not where we live though. There are people who they hear this and like, yeah, I get it. If I'm going to follow Jesus, my family's going to kick me out. They're going to disinherit me. If I follow Jesus, I could get arrested. I could lose my business. If I follow Jesus, I get beaten and there's, there's no recourse. 
It's the police doing it. If I follow Jesus, I could get killed solely, for the re- solely because of my relationship with him. It's reality for 360 million people. That's about a third of the church. It's a significant portion of the body of Christ, but it's not us. If they're the suffering church, we're the, we're the comfortable church. And so how do we begin to understand what Jesus is saying? He, he gives these four, again, reasons. It's a hard call. Take up your cross, follow me. And then he says, there's a play on this word life. Your Bible may say soul in those few verses. It's the same word. And what Jesus is doing is setting up a contrast between physical little L life and kind of spiritual capital L life, this world and the world to come. He's trying to create this contrast. And he's basically saying you got to pick. He's, you, can't, you, you may not be able to have both. And that's what we want to do. We want to hold on to both of them. He's saying you can't do that. You, you, you can't. If you want to try to hold on to your physical life, little L life, you're going to lose your capital L life, that abundant eternal life. But if you're willing to give up that little L life, then you'll get that capital L life. Again, think about this in the context of persecution or suffering or potential martyrdom where somebody says to you, hey, if you'll, if you'll disown Jesus, I won't kill you. That's all it takes. Just deny your faith. That's all you got to do. And then he, he says, if you gain the whole world, and that's, that's it, that's money, fame, power, whatever you want. Like, it's the list. All the, all the dreams. It, it doesn't do you any good if you gain all of that, if it costs you your soul, that capital L life. What can you give in exchange for that? And the answer is, is implied it's nothing. Your soul, that capital L life, it's worth too much. It's worth more than anything you can get in this world. If you're ashamed of me in this generation, I'll be ashamed of you in the next. Again, think of that context of somebody saying, hey, are you going to, if you deny him, we'll let you go. If you deny him, we'll give you your job back. If you deny him, we'll let your kids into this school. If you deny him, you can come home. It's hard, difficult for us. What, again, the, the 12, the crowd, Mark's congregation and 360 million people in the world right now, they hear that very literally. That's their reality. What does that begin to look like for us who live in a place where following Jesus is accepted and acceptable? How do we begin to walk that out? I don't know, to be honest. It's kind of my job to know. I know you're probably thinking that. Like we came here for you to tell us we don't know. You don't know. But a couple of things I want you to keep in mind. There's a tension that we want to hold on to. And this is why I can't just, I can't give you a prescription There's a tension that we want to hold on to. And one is the call is the call. It's the same. There's no asterisk at the end where Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you live in a place where following me is difficult. If you're one of the 360 million people in the persecuted church, if following me may cost you something, there's no asterisk. So the call is the call for all of us. Anyone who's going to come after him, we have to be willing to disown ourselves, our right to make our own decisions. And we've got to be willing to die. That's what it is to to follow him. That's the road that he took, a road of suffering and death. So we've got to be willing to do that. Recognize that call is still the same for us, even though we live in a place that's comfortable. 
where honestly it's pretty easy to follow Jesus. And some would say it's actually easier to follow him than to not in some cases where we live. But the second thing we have to keep in mind, we hold that thing in tension. We're all called disown myself, take up my cross and follow. But it's going to look different. At the end of John 21, the last story, Peter's denied Jesus three times. He's been resurrected. This is a few days after Easter and um, he's cooking a little breakfast on the beach and Peter sees him and some other guys who are fishing and they come and they have breakfast and Jesus begins to restore Peter. Peter denied him three times and so three times Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And three times Peter says yes. And then they take a walk, just them two, down the beach and Jesus says, here's what it's going to look like for you. You're, gonna, you're going to be crucified. That's what he's communicating. He doesn't say it that clearly. But he says, when you were young, you got to basically go, what you, go where you want and do what you want. When you're old, that's not going to happen. Somebody's going to dress you and they're going to take you someplace that you don't want to go. He's speaking about his crucifixion. And John is ta- tailing along. A little creepy maybe, but he's kind of back there. They're walking and John's back there. And Peter says, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, none of your business. That's what he says. It's none of your business. If, if he stays alive till I come back, that, that means that, that has nothing to do with you. Your job is to walk the road that I'm putting in front of you. So at the same time, we want to say, yes, all of us are called to disown ourselves, to take up our cross and follow, whether we live here or in Somalia. That's going to look different for us. We can't put ourselves in those because we can't recreate those circumstances, and why would we want to? Well, the church would be purified if it was more difficult. Probably so, but that's not our job. The father is the gardener. He cuts back the ones that bear fruit, and he cuts off the ones that don't. That's his job, not ours. Our job is to keep our eyes on Jesus and to follow him. Listen to this. this is, we'll look at this more next week, but just a glimpse After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. He led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. We'll talk about that more next week. That's called the transfiguration. What I want you to see this morning, we serve a Good Friday God and an Easter God. Jesus is a Good Friday Jesus and an Easter Jesus. He was crucified and he was raised, and we need to hold both of those things together. That's what he's giving them there. He's just given them, he's just told them very upsetting, very disorienting, mind-blowing news. This is what it looks like. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. They don't hear that he's going to be raised again. And if y'all are going to follow me, same thing. You got to be willing to die. It's a tough call. So he takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle up on the mountain, and he lets them see himself. This is who I really am. This is who I am. He gives them something they can hang their hat on. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die, but you can remember this. That, that, that's reality. Again, we'll talk more about how that impacts us next week, but I think it's important for us to keep those things in mind. This one who calls us to die is the one who's overcome death. He's worth it. 
Hebrews 12 says, throw off everything that entangles you. Get rid of all that stuff that's going to hold you back. Run the race that's marked out for you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. I don't know exactly what it means for us in Marietta in 2022 to disown ourselves and to take up our cross. Because honestly, like we're, you're, you, we're never going to be persecuted. It's not going to happen. We're never going to be put in a position where our life is on the line. As long as you live here, it's not going to happen. The minor inconveniences that some of us face, it's just that. It's a minor inconvenience. But if we keep our eyes fixed on him, let me say it this way. So um, a good friend of mine, his name's Mark Fritchman. He's a pastor of a church in St. Simon's. And he helped us get this thing started 15 years ago or whatever. And um, he was at a camp in Colorado, a Young Life camp, and he was, he was sat down to eat. And a guy sat down with him, and Mark was telling him his story. He said, tell me your story. And the guy said, I'm about to close my church. We've been going for a couple of years, and we're not going to make it. And Mark said, well, tell me about that. And the guy said, well, and he kind of drew this little picture out. And he said, this is where we were going. And I had all these guys in the boat with me. And, and, and I thought we were going in the same direction. And, you know, there was me, and I was kind of paddling this direction. There were certainly a couple of guys that had their oars in their lap. I realized there were some guys who were paddling in the opposite direction. But he said, do you know who was the most dangerous? And Mark said, no, who, who was the most dangerous? He said, the guy who was just a little bit off. Just a little bit off because I thought he was with me for a really, really long time. And it wasn't until we got really far down the road that I realized how far off we were. There's a danger for us thinking about those questions. What, if you could gain the whole world, would that be worth it if you were to forfeit your soul? We would say no. Most of us say, no way. I'm not going to forfeit my soul. But we want to have it both ways. We want to have our cake and eat it too. Can I have the world and Jesus? We live in a place that says, yeah, give it a shot. Go for it. Nothing external to us is pushing us to make a decision. Remember the parable of the soils, that third type of soil, the crowded or the weedy soil. What is it? Excuse me, that's the last type, the fourth type. What is it that chokes out the work of God? It's the world, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and our desire for other things. That's the world. That's not necessarily sin. It's just the world. It becomes sin because it keeps us from Jesus. But most of us can see that stuff coming. What we want to do where we live is, can I have both? Can I pursue the things of the world and the things of the kingdom at the same time? Because often we've said this before. The things that Jesus wants for us, at least in some ways, are the same things we want for ourselves. Think of those of you who are parents. A lot of the things that you want for your kids are the things that God wants for them. You want them to flourish. So does he. It's just sometimes we define flourishing differently than he does. And almost every time for him... To get anybody to flourishing, there's going to be pain first. A lot of us as parents, we don't want to see it. And so we swoop in there and try to save the day. And we short-circuit the, the, the greater work that God's trying to do. We do the same thing in our own life. We think we're following Jesus, but we're actually just walking in the same direction of, as him for a little bit of time. And what's dangerous is we don't realize it. We think we're paddling in the same direction, but we're off just a little bit. And it's not till we're pretty far down the road that we realize I, 
he was taking me somewhere different. Or, more importantly, I was headed somewhere different. I never, I, I never disowned myself. I just tried to bring him along for the ride. I thought he would bless the things that I was trying to do. He wants me to be happy, right? He wants me to be fulfilled, right? He wants to keep me safe, right? He wants me to live out my dreams, right? And there's some truth to that. It's just not the ultimate truth. He wants you to be holy, right? He wants his kingdom to come, right? He wants all the people out there who are dying to have a shot, right? So the question for us, and this is where I would encourage you, I don't, we got to be done. Um, Bo, you can come back. We'll just wrap with this. We'll, I'll just be done. Y'all can, um, it's, we're running late. This is a question I want you asking the Lord. And I want you to ask today, but I want you to ask it this week. I really do. It's the one I'm, I'm asking myself. Where am I trying to have the world and have the kingdom of God? I'm not asking you to sell everything you have and move to a monastery on top of Mount Everest. But I am asking us to be honest. We're not, a, we're not sufferers for Jesus. Nobody's ever, as long as you live here, going to come up to you and say, denounce your faith or you're fired. Denounce your faith or you're going to jail. Walk away from Jesus or I'm killing you. Like, it's not going to happen. We don't have that external pressure that causes us to say, am I actually following him? Am I, am I walking after him? And so it's easy for us to think we can have it both ways. That we can be fat and happy and hungry for Jesus. And I, just, I don't know that we can. So the question I want you asking is, Jesus, where, where am I doing that? In what places am I compromising my relationship with you by trying to hold on to the things of this world. And I'm not going to fill in that blank for you. You've got to figure out what are the things of the world that have taken root in your life. The three big categories are the worries of this life. Again, that's not sin. That's just life. The worries of this life. The deceitfulness of wealth. Holy moly, is that not Marietta? And the desire for other things. Just ask, where am I doing that? That's a hard question to ask. That's why it's so important for us to keep our eyes fixed on him. To remember he's worth it. He's worth it. If we could get ourselves to believe that he actually could run our life better than we could. We'd be almost all the way home. Holy Spirit, would you help us? We confess, we live in a place where it's super easy to at least nominally say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got baptized whenever, got confirmed whenever. I'm a basically good person, whatever that means. 
We don't want to be someone who's, we're rowing just a little bit off. We don't want to wake up one day and realize there's a huge gap between you and us. Jesus, would you help us? Would you show us the places this week? My prayer would be you just start with one. We don't want to be overwhelmed. Show us this week, where is the world gotten into our hearts? Where are we trying to have it both ways? An unwillingness to disown ourselves, to say, I don't call the shots anymore. It's not my life. It's his. Where are the places where we're not willing, and for us it's just metaphorical, where we're not willing to die? Would you show us? And beneath that and above that and around that and shot through that, I pray that we would see you more clearly, Jesus. I think that if we saw you for who you are, then we say all the rest of this stuff is garbage anyway. It may be good garbage, but it's nothing in comparison to you. Help us. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 